Good morning, everyone. I hope you had a warm welcome. Um, What I really hope today is that as we we leave this place, that we walk away thinking about Jesus being absolutely amazing. Not that he's like some great orator or rhetorician and he can, you know, trick people with questions, but that we walk away and go, whoa, he's so different. I can trust him with my life. I can trust him with my heart. I can trust him with anything. And I'll let him change me and shape me to be the person he wants me to be. And that really has been the series that we've been in the last few weeks, going through the Gospel of Mark, um, seeing that Jesus is a different kind of king. Oh, hey. Sorry, I was like, get shined in my face. So he's a different kind of king. And, and the king that didn't come to be served, but to serve. A king that came to die as a ransom for many, to give life. Not to take life, not to oppress, but to give freedom. And, and then what we saw last week was that this different kind of king has great authority. He came to the temple where people were supposed to be rule, or worshiping God. And really all they were doing is kind of going through the ritual, kind of going through the motions. And, and really, the, the, you know, you're expecting worship and rejection. You know, Jesus walks into Jerusalem. There's great worship of who he is that God will save. And then these fickle people a few days later say, crucify, crucify, crucify. And last week we saw that actually there's two different crowds. There's a crowd that came and said, yes, Hosanna, God is going to save. There's going to, new kingdom is coming. And there's another crowd full of these people who are in charge of the temple, who were jealous of him, who knew that he was there to take away his power and were out to get him and arrest him. And those are the ones that were going to say, crucify, crucify. Um, and this week, or actually also that we saw that God is willing to kind of pull the plug. That things aren't going well, and over time, he gets patient and continually offers people to come back, and they don't. He's willing to pull the plug on the temple he did, on churches in the past have done that. And so we just know that God has some high standards, but the, the wonderful thing is that he's in charge, but the character of his in-chargedness, his authority is good and firm and warm. And so this week, that, that theme is going to continue. The, the, what's going to continue is that he's, God is... Where Jesus is going to be confronting the very people who are going to say, crucify, crucify, crucify. That, that there's things that are getting in the way of them seeing Jesus the way they should see Jesus. And, and that's greed and power, hypocrisy, jealousy. And, and there's, so they don't really see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus is going to confront that. But he's also going to do it in such a way to actually win them. He's not doing it just to kind of poke the, the finger in their eye, but he's actually doing it to, to win them and, and to draw them near to him. But they refuse. And so what, what, I was, what we're going to see is that we're going to look at a large section of, of Scripture today. And there's going to be lots of moving parts. And there's going to be basically five main sections. And we'll, I'll point them out more uh, closely later. But we're going to see lots of moving parts. But it's, the main idea is really that let nothing get in the way of seeing the one that's in charge. Let nothing get in the way of actually loving and, and, and giving everything you have to the one that's in charge who is who's, who's firm and warm and inviting. And that's the real idea. And, and what's amazing is that so many Christians really do get in the way of seeing Jesus. You think about just the church or even just individuals. They, they get in the way of others seeing Jesus and even indi- individuals seeing Jesus for themselves. So... As a, a guy who was uh, not a Christian his whole life, about 20, 21 when I became a Christian, I saw, as a high schooler, I saw lots of people who said they were Christians and were bigger partiers than I ever was. It, it, there was so much disconnect from what they said they believed and what everybody said they believed to what their actual life was like. 
Uh, and, and so my impression of what Jesus and Christianity was like was very skewed and messed up. How could you say one thing and do another? And we could go through the whole history of the church. It's so much like that. But even for myself, when I became a Christian, when I became an insider, uh, I, there were so many things that kept me from actually seeing the person of Jesus or who he says he is to me and what, how, what he's made me and what he thinks of me. Because I would say, I would do things like, you know, I'd sin and say something stupid or do something stupid. And so I would say, oh, well, 24 hours, okay, I'm going to clean myself, make myself holy before I can enter into the presence of the holy. And there's so many lies to thinking of, I can do that on my own, I can be independent, I can make myself right in order to be in the presence of God. And it really, what it really was, is I kind of keeping Jesus at arm's length. I was keeping him from actually seeing, or actually hearing and listening what he was doing for me. That he actually loved me before I was ever, well, while I was still a sinner, while I was his enemy. He, he came to give life and to make, give it, well, incredible things. And I, I'm assuming that we can all be like this. That, that, let's just think, that things in our past, suffering, circumstances that we have even today, can keep Jesus at arm's length. We're not happy with where we're at in life. And so we kind of keep Jesus at arm's length because we're angry with him that he put some, that situation in our lives and we don't really like it. Um, but we, could, we could keep Jesus at arm's length with our choices in, well, career, our ambitions in life, those things can kind of keep him at a distance. Um, even think about just being in church. I can serve God for wrong reasons, right? You know, you, could, you can study the Bible and know lots of things that are in the Bible and have all this knowledge in order to have status in the church, in order to feel like you know everything, to feel like yourself is you're mature. The reality is you're still kind of keeping Jesus at a distance. And even the people who don't even know Jesus can do the same thing. We're like completely hostile to him and be completely curved on oneself. And we kind of noticed this week uh, while teaching that when you're curved on yourself, you're kind of giving an elbow to God. You're kind of like, ah, I like me, get away. And you could be absolutely hostile to him. So there's so many ways that we can get in the way of seeing Jesus for who he is. And even the fact that he's in charge and control of everything and he's doing it for good reasons. And what's amazing about this is that we are just like the people that Jesus is interacting with in his ministry. We're, we're no different. We can be like the disciples. Oh, we love you, Jesus. And kind of wishy-washy about it. Kind of go back and forth. We could be like the scribes who kind of, we're about the rules. We're about knowing our laws. And we're about doing what we're supposed to do. The ritual and the religion. And kind of keep Jesus away. We could be absolutely indifferent. Who cares? About us. Or we could be like, uh, the, or we could be absolutely hostile to him. Which is what we're going to see. And... So that, all that to say is to get back to the, to the text. Of, um, but well, before we go to the text, just an overview. So uh, what we're going to see is that Jesus is asked two questions and he responds with a question. Um, specifically about authority. And then another section we're going to see that Jesus actually tells a story to win the hearts of the people who are confronting him. Then we're going to have a section where he's asked three impossible questions. It meant to trap him and he answers them. And then he goes from the being the one that's asking questions or being asked questions to the one that asks questions. And he asks the impossible question that nobody can answer. And then he reveals what true religion is like and what it's not. So that's where we're going um, today. And we're going to go right into the text that Becky was reading earlier. 11.27 through 12, or 12. And the first paragraph is really... 
Jesus befuddling these guys who thought they were in, in authority with a question. And, and really, they're going there to, to shame him. Because in this culture, it's an honor-shame culture. Honor is you're born with it or you acquire it in every social interaction. And you either, and in every social interaction, you can either gain honor, you can maintain honor, or you can lose it and be shamed. And so these pr- chief priests, scribes, and elders are coming to Jesus saying, what authority do you have to turn over the tables in the, in the temple? And who gave it to you? And so they're coming with authority to confront someone who's supposed to have authority, right? And the, the, the irony of all this really is, we'll see, is that their authority is actually coming from man. See, the chief priests were appointed chief priests by the prefect of Rome. And the prefect of Rome was someone who controls Palestine, who was appointed by the emperor. So these people are coming to confront Jesus, whose authority is from man more than anything else. And they come to Jesus and you, in authority, and you would expect Jesus to kind of maybe honor that authority. But actually, he's the one who kind of seems to be an authority. So in verse 29, we see... He asked them the two questions, and Jesus asked them a question. I'm, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from the earth? Answer me. And you, it, it kind of sounds like you know, a kind of firm father confronting someone. Like just really calm but straightforward. The, the, the most literal way of translating this is he says kind of this. The baptism from John. From heaven or from earth or from man? Tell me now. And they're kind of like, what? What? And, you know, their interaction, they go and argue with each other. Well, if we say John the Baptist is from heaven, then he'll go, why don't we believe him? And we know what John the Baptist said about him. Is he's the Messiah. He's coming. He's greater than John the Baptist. So that doesn't work. We can't say that. And if we say that it's from man, then all the people around here are going to come after us. So, um, oh, we don't know. And as they go to Jesus and they go, so Jesus is like, so what's your answer? Uh, well, mm, uh, well, we don't really know. That's kind of the best thing that we can come up with is we just don't know. And the people who are coming in authority to shame Jesus go, yeah, well, in this social interaction, we've kind of lost some honor, haven't we? Uh, and they go away. But before they go away, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story to win their hearts. And, and what's amazing by this is it's a story that, so we get the idea that so this owner buys some land, plants a vineyard, builds a a fence or a wall around it to protect it, a tower to have someone look over it, have a wine press ready to to harvest the grapes and make great wine, and then he hires some tenants to take care of it. And so the tenants at the harvest time are expected to pay the owner a part of the the harvest. And he sends three, three servants, and they keep on rejecting him, and to the point of escalation where the third servant is killed. And then the owner says, well, I have an idea. Picked up in verse 6. He says, I'll I'll have one more. I have my beloved son. And uh, I will send them to him. And and they will respect him. But those tenants, they said, no, no, no. Look at We have an opportunity. We can own this place. It's a great vineyard. We can own it. Let's get rid of the son. They kill him. They throw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus asked the question, so what is the owner going to do? It's obvious. He's going to come and remove these tenants and destroy them. And, bring, and give it to that vineyard to somebody else. Now, we'll stop right there because they would have known exactly what Jesus is saying. Because in Isaiah 5, God talks about Israel 
being a vineyard, a choice vineyard that he made, that he built a wall around, that he built a tower and a wine press, because this choice people, the vineyard, is going to be his prized possession. And who's in charge of taking care of this prized possession in Israel? The, the chief priest, the scribes, the elders. And so what does God do to reach his vineyard and take care of his vineyard and to harvest from it? Prophets. And what do the leaders of Israel do? They kill the prophets. And so God says, hey, I'll send my beloved son. And where do we see that? God, Jesus has already been called beloved son twice in Mark already. So it's really clear for us as readers or listeners going, I know exactly who Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, what you're tempted to do is to be God. Because that's exactly what these scribes wanted. They want to own Israel. They want to lead them, to have the, the power, the position, the authority. We want to be God. We don't want God to be God. And so God sends his beloved son, and they are jealous of this and say, hey, this is our chance to have the power and the authority. We'll kill him and throw him out of, the, out of Israel. And I, think they, and I think Jesus is saying this. I know where this is going. Don't go there. Please don't go there. You have a chance. You don't have to arrest me. You don't have to kill me. You don't have to do those things. I'm offering this to you. Because he says then, look what the scriptures say. You have, have you not read the scripture? Of course they've read the scripture. This is from Psalm 118. This is a psalm that they would be singing over at Passover. Everybody's singing this psalm. You know, this is how the psalm that Jesus entered in Jerusalem, that they were singing. This is the psalm that he quotes. So it's on everybody's mind. He says, so the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it was a marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus is saying, if you kill me, and you will, but... The offering this to you is that I will go from being kind of the, the one that's rejected to the cornerstone of the foundation or the capstone, the, the, the most central piece, the most significant piece. And what's their response? The response isn't, oh yeah, well, that could be us. And no, well, we can't. No, you're the son of God. You're the beloved one. We, we believe John the Baptist. We believe everything you say and all the works that you're doing. And we're, you're right. I wish that's what they would have done, but they didn't. They went, you know what? Jesus tricked us with some questions and trapped us. Now we're going to go away and figure out how to trap the him. And they're not even all that original because the next section, what we'll see is the first impossible question that Jesus answers is the very tactic that Jesus had just did with the two, the, the, the two questions that, he, uh, that uh, just happened. They come and try to trap him. So in 13 through 17 is... Uh, the first impossible question. And what we see is hypocrisy of religiousness and politicalness, if, you, if those are words, um, are, re, are exposed by what Jesus does. And this is a very famous passage. So um, what happened is these chief elders or chief priests, elders and scribes send the Pharisees and Herodians to ask Jesus a question. And all they really need to know about the Pharisees is they're kind of the religious type. They're devout. They're devoted. They know the scriptures. They know everything. They're very they're keen on rules and everything else. And the Herodians, well, they're not really like that. They're more about power. They, they're, they're chummy with the Romans. The Pharisees don't really like the Romans. The Herodians really like the, the Romans because they have all the power because of their connection with the Romans. So you can imagine they don't really get along with each other very much. So you have the devoted and you have the political coming to Jesus because he's a threat to both. 
And they kind of ask this really nice question of Jesus. In verse 14, they say, Teacher, we know that you are true. I do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And, and we'll see that Jesus kind of knows exactly their hypocrisy. They're not really coming to ask a genuine question. They're trying to trap him. And the trap is this. Well, if he says, well, no, you, you should pay taxes to Caesar. Then all the Pharisees and all the people that are around the Pharisees and, and a lot of the people who are following Jesus will say, forget that. We, and he loses all honor, all authority. He loses all credibility to the religious. But if he says, um, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians are going to arrest him for treason. So he's going to lose honor or he's going to go away to prison and die. And Jesus says, oh, okay. I'll answer your impossible question. Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Or God, excuse me. And they were marveled by this. Because they're like, how did he get out of this trap? And I think what we need to see is that, not, that Jesus isn't some great rhetorician, but that he's absolutely in charge of every situation that he's in. And the people who are going, to, he's even in charge of the people who are going to take him and kill him at the cross. And here's an example, five examples, really, of him being an absolute charge and authority in every situation. Unlike any other king, he is completely in charge of everything. And so he says, hey, look, you guys are, got it all wrong. Every authority comes from God, even the Roman one. And, you know, bring me, bring me the denarius, which is the only way you could pay Roman taxes at the time. And if you looked at a Roman denarius at the time, you had the picture of the emperor on it. And on the front end, it would say, son of the divine Augustus, or son of God. And on the back side, it would say, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. So here on the coin, you have son of God, high priest, with an image on it. And <laughs> if the, you can imagine these Pharisees who are uh, by the way, breaking the first, you know, have graven image, breaking one of the main commandments. Here you go. Take a look. He's already calling them out. Like, what are you doing? Two is so. Two is also. Look at God. Every authority is from God. Let's honor that. And when you honor the authority from God, pay taxes, um, vote for us, uh, pay, follow all the laws. You're on. You're giving to Caesar what is due to Caesar, because every authority comes from God, including the difficult ones and therefore give to god what is god to give god all your heart and all your soul all your mind and all your strength and honor all that god has given to you now if there's a conflict between the authorities of man and authority of god in the sense of like me giving my life to then we can fail and and give to the caesar what isn't god or what isn't caesar's but god's and he and, and jesus is saying don't do that honor the authority that's given to us because it's ultimately from God. And that's when they go, whoa, okay. All right, well, first impossible question, answered. Now we're going to go to the second one. So they send now the Sadducees. So 18 through 27. And this is, the Sadducees, all you really need to know is they're like the academics. All right, they, they're like the liberal academics, really. So what they say is basically the first five books of the Bible is, are the only true um, scriptures. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. Those are the only true books. And therefore, since the resurrection isn't in there, we don't believe in the resurrection either. 
So they come to Jesus with a theological question that nobody can answer. And they kind of come up with this kind of scenario. They, they, in Deuteronomy, there's this law called the Leverite Law, which basically says is that when a man marries a woman, and they are married, and they don't have kids, but he dies... It's going to be his brother's responsibility to marry that woman to keep his dead brother's line going. And so what happens is these these academics say, okay, um, Jesus, what happens if a guy dies and doesn't have any children and then then a brother marries her and he dies and another one comes and marries her and he dies and it goes on. Seven men have married this woman and died and no children. What you got to think, man, this is a deadly woman. Um, but it's just like divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. You can put it in our context. So who, who's married in this, you know, fantasy land of resurrection? You know, it, it seems like absolute chaos. And Jesus kind of says in verse 24, he said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you neither, uh, you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It was just absolutely amazing. These academics who have probably the first five books of Genesis memorized. Say, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the story of God. And you don't know what God is like. That's your problem, you academics. And so, verse 25, it says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage like the angels in heaven. See, he says, when the, the resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth, if you know your scriptures, you know the story of God, God wants to relate to his people like a husband relates to a bride. So there won't be any marriage in heaven. Because all the people are going to be married to God. This is it's all throughout scripture. From Genesis and then for us, Revelation. You know, at the end of the end of time, Jesus is going to be there and the church is going to be his bride. And he's going to be the bridegroom. There's going to be no marriage between us because we're married to Christ. See, you don't know the story of God, you academics. You know all the scriptures. You can quote them. You have them memorized. But you don't know the, the God behind the scriptures. And then he says, you don't know the power of God either. For in verse 26. As for the dead being rise, are raised, you not, or have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, about how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. He's saying, look, God is in relationship with those that are alive, not dead people. And when he's speaking to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for a long time. And he says, God says, I'm the God of the living. Therefore, in the five books that you uh, Sadducees only read from, there's the proof of the resurrection. It's in God's character. He's in relationship with living people. So you're quite wrong. You don't know who God is, and you don't know his story. And isn't that the case for so much of us, especially in the church? We can know scriptures. We can feel like we don't know enough, and we have to like, get all the knowledge. We have to quote certain things and all this other stuff. And the reality is we don't know the God behind the Bible. That Actually, the Bible is a story about God coming and saving a people for himself, that we might be his people, that we could be his treasured possession. And if we miss that, we miss the whole story and we miss the power of God. See, Jesus answers another second impossible question. And the, now the academics go away. And then we go to the third impossible question in verse 28. And this is where a scribe came and kind of heard the commotion between probably the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. And he asked another kind of controversial question that he anticipates will create division. 
He says, which commandment is the most important of all? This is a question all the rabbis of the time were constantly asking. How do you summarize the 613 laws that we have in the Old Testament? Because we can't go walk around trying to figure out how to, which, okay, that's 598, uh, this is 496. You know, how, which laws, or how do we do this? It's not possible. And, and there's lots of goes at this. So Hillel was a, a famous rabbi. He was actually the mentor of Paul. And his, his answer was, the things that you hate, don't do to other people. It's kind of turning the golden rule kind of inside out. Another one was kind of, uh, well, they just get to the second part. It was, well, just l- love your neighbor. That's it. That's kind of the summary of the law. And G- those are inadequate. Here Jesus is quite amazing. He says in verse 29, the, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So this is one, the, the, first, the first commandment is from what they call the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, is a way to say it. And they would say this every day. And he's saying the, the greatest commandment is to love, period, to love. First, to love God with everything. And as, a, as an expression of that love for God, to love others as you would love yourself. Now, this love yourself kind of thing, kind of, I think, can be mixed up in our minds sometimes. So the way that we naturally, born in our sin, love ourselves, just two examples. One is we're probably really, or three examples, we're really quick to overlook things that we do wrong. And we're really quick to forgive and forget ourselves at most of the time. And, and Jesus is saying, love your neighbor, quick to, to overlook wrongs, be quick to forgive. This is one example. Another could be also that um, just, you're very, oftentimes we're very sensitive of being wronged. And, and I think one example would be to love other people as, as yourself is to be sensitive to how other people might be wronged by you. I mean, just two, just, there's lots of ways we could talk about this, but that's just two simple ones. Love God with everything you have, all that you're being, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the, this is the fulfillment of all the law. And the scribe goes, wow, you have answered right. You did great, Jesus. It's unbelievable. Uh, you are right. To love God and to love neighbor is far greater than any of the sacrifices. And then in 34, Jesus says, he saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And, and what's interesting, you don't see the scribe repenting or turning or anything like that. He just, it's, there seems to be still a distance between him and Jesus. He can recognize Jesus' wisdom but doesn't really come. I think he's in a state of also being shocked. How did Jesus answer that question and not cause a division between all these people around him? And then at this point, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They all go, okay, that's it. We cannot shame this man. He is in absolute charge of every circumstance. And we can see that he's going at and trying to take away everything that's getting in the way of those men not seeing Jesus or getting in the way of everything that they need to see Jesus. So they need to see Jesus and the things in a way and Jesus is trying to remove them. And this is where the big transition is. He kind of goes from being the one that's asked questions to asking the question to, and, from, and to being the one that starts to teach. And what we see here is that uh, Jesus reveals what true religion is, what true faith is. And he says first to kind of the Sadducees, elders and everyone... He's teaching in the temple. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of God? 
David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The great throng, the crowd around him were excited. They were glad about what he just said. Because they basically um, caused the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the chief priests and everybody to be quiet. He asked the impossible question and there's no answer. And it's from scripture. So everybody knew that the Messiah was going to be the son of David. There's, we can go through the Old Testament. There's many, many, many references to the, the Messiah, the coming king, to be the, the descendant of David, to be the physical um, son of David, the, the part of the, David's family. But in Psalm 110, which is where Jesus is talking from, it se- David seems to say, the Lord God, the first Lord, said to my Lord, the Messiah. So, Jesus, so David is calling the, his son Lord, and I, I don't know about you, but that's not a normal circumstance. Father recognizing son as greater than. And he, so David, the father, is saying, look at the Messiah is my Lord, and sit at my right hand. And so this Messiah is going to sit at the right hand of the Father, or right hand of God, and he's going to have all the enemies put under his feet. This is the, the well, the, I guess the foretelling of what the Messiah was going to be like. And so David is clearly calling his son Lord. How can this be? And the Sadducees and everybody go, uh, mm, yeah, we don't know. And so he, I think he, again, shows that he's in absolute control. And then he, in the last two sections, he kind of just reveals uh, what true religion is all about. So the first one, 38 through 40, is... Um, Yeah, well, it just shows that beware of the scribes, beware of the greed, beware of their power, beware of their hypocrisy. So he's teaching, he says, beware of the scribes who walk like, uh, who like to walk around in long robes and like uh, greetings and markets, have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor of feast, who devour widows at houses and for a pretense take long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So, their pride, the first example of them walking around in robes and having prominence in society and having the best seats at, in the synagogue and at feast. They're all, they do all these religious things and have these positions for their benefit. Even to the point they actually devour the widow's house. So when, when the widow is there, they take money from her. They take her belongings for, out of taxes and temple taxes and all these other things. And the whole point is actually the temple was there to support the priests, but also to support the widow and the orphan. And it's the exact opposite. They're devouring the very people that are supposed to be taken care of. And then they stand up and have these long prayers to show that they're doing these religious things for obviously wrong reasons. You can do right things for wrong reasons, and this is what they're doing. They're absolute hypocrites. And see, Jesus is saying, beware of this. And then he, he says... In the widow's offering, in the last section, Jesus sits down and sees that people are, are uh, putting money in the offering, in the treasury, in the temple. And he says, and, and so many rich people put in large sums in verse 41. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all that she had, to live on. And here's a perfect example, I think, of, of true religion in this widow. 
is that she is trusting everything that she has to God. Not just valuables, but I think her whole life. She's giving all her mind and all her soul and all her heart, everything to God. Even in a really bad situation. See, these scribes, these leaders, they're taking advantage of her. And she's, she's actually giving her last bit of coinage to pay the tax that she had to pay. And instead of complaining about it, not doing it or finding ways out of it, she, we see her going and giving everything she has to God. She's not letting anything, even the bad situations in her life, to get away of actually trusting God with everything. And that, that seems to be the whole thrust of all of this, is to, to let not anything get in the way of seeing Jesus, seeing the one who's in charge. And when he's in charge, he's kind, he's firm, he's warm, and we can trust him with everything. And, he, and even though he's going to go to the cross in a couple weeks, in this, for us in, this, in the gospel, he's going to be in absolute charge in even that situation. And we can trust him with everything. So the question would be, was how, do you, how do you want to respond? How do you respond to Jesus? Do you, you know, do you, are you going to be like, well, indifferent, oh, whatever. You could be like that scribe. Oh, yeah, he's really smart. He gets, man, he can summarize the whole Bible really well, um, but not really kind of step in and trust Jesus for life. Are you going to be like the scribes, the Pharisees, who kind of go and say, actually, we're going to get rid of, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Actually, I'm going to take him out. Or is it, do I want to love Jesus? Now, I know that it's, it's, it seems like it's impossible, and it is, I think, in some ways, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. But we can say, God, I want to love you, and I clearly know and feel that there's an inadequacy in my love for you. Can you help me? There's things in my life that are getting in the way that I can't see you. Can you take them out? Anything and everything, God, will you remove those things so that you can shape me? Can you shape my world for me? Because you think about someone, you know, you could have been a Christian for six minutes, six days, or 60 years. God's going to, is in the business of changing you. 60 years, you might think, oh man, I know Christianity. I know the word. I know everything that we're supposed to know. And that, the reality, that's kind of a lie like the scribes and the Pharisees were, were believing. That somehow you've arrived. But if you say, God, I want to love you with all my heart, soul, and strength. And will you shape me? God's going to open things up. He's going to make things new and refresh you that you weren't expecting. And you say, God, actually, I want you to change me. I want you to shape me. And whatever it is, because I'm not done learning about you. Even a young Christian, you know, there's lots of changes that take place. Becoming a Christian for the first time. You're going to start, it's going to be amazing. God, I'm willing to rethink everything because you're going to start seeing the world completely different. You know, relationships, education, culture, politics, everything is going to look differently if, if I have my eyes fixed on Jesus. Because I'm going to engage the world in a different way. And you say, God, I want whatever it takes, I don't want to hold back. I don't want to be like the scribes. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I don't want to be like those people who refuse to break down their walls or let you break down the walls to see you. And you think about that as a church. We could so easily do rituals and things like that. Just go through the motions, do our traditions, and miss the vision of who Christ is. We can, we can forget that we want to be people who are transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. And, but if we sit back and go, actually, God, we're willing to do anything and everything, we can be bold, we can be creative, we can see that God is actually in work in us, and we can be a people who love God and love others, and people will want to come, and people will discover who Christ is, and we'll be changing because we'll never arrive as a church. So many churches think, well, this is what we've done. We've always done it. This is the way that we're going to do it. Well, actually, the only thing that we don't want to change is that 
We want God to change us. The God that's love. A father loving a son, a son loving a father. Be the one that come and change us and invite us into that family. That's what we want. We don't want anything to get in the way of seeing Jesus, the one in, in charge. We don't want to be like the scribes. We want to be like the widow. And let's, let's, let's ask God to change us, to, to be constant with us and say, and make us be people who see Jesus and are willing to let anything get out of the way to see him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you're kind and generous, that you've given us an incredible gift, your son. And that everything that is yours, you've given to your son. And everything that the son has has been given to us by the, uh, what he's done on the cross. And we just ask that we let nothing get in the way of seeing him. The seeing the one who's in charge. The one that is in charge of every situation. Um, and that we can give our lives to him. We can love him and trust him in the circumstances. Even a widow who's, who's lost her husband, who's lost all her children probably. And it has no sense of where to go, but she's still trusting you with everything. Even acknowledging and trusting the authority that is above her. And Lord, may we be people who are quick to uh, change and respond to you the way that uh, you want us to. Um, Lord, I just ask that uh, the rest of this time that may just truly bless you as we respond to an incredible God. A God who didn't come to be served, but served, and he became a ransom for many. We pray in his name. Amen.